It was a misreading of U.S. policy, these words like betrayal and blame. The Kurds misread U.S. policy. Our policy is to support a united federal Iraq, and Abadi is our ally. Supporting Kurdish independence would directly counter that policy. And I would argue even the opposite, as some have. Supporting Kurdish independence would strengthen Iran and other radical elements in Baghdad. Hello, this is Thanasi Kambanis. Welcome to episode five of the TCF World podcast. On this episode, we invite Renad Mansour to talk about some of the latest developments in Iraq and Iraqi Kurdistan, and Christine Vandentorn to discuss the internal politics of Kurds in Iraq and the aftermath of their failed independence referendum. Hi, welcome to TCF World's podcast. This is Thanasi Kambanis, and I'm here with Renad Mansour. Renad, welcome. Hello, thanks for having me. So uh, uh, let's start, um, let's cut right to the chase uh, uh, with what's happening right now in uh, Iraq with the reconquest or the reintegration of Iraqi Kurdistan into um, into the Iraqi state. Uh, a lot, there's been a lot of, of noise about this as somehow showing Iran uh, having its way. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. uh, d- d- tell us uh, what, um, you know, first of all, is this, is this, is this an Iranian, should we think of this as an Iranian thing going on between Iraq and Iraqi Kurdistan? Well, it seems that certainly uh, Iran is the smartest player in all of this, you know, when the U.S. and their allies were really trying to convince Masoud Barzani to postpone the referendum, Iran, knowing the Barzani's better, knowing the region better, knowing the mentality, knew that there was no way that the president of Kurdistan could postpone the referendum, was preparing, right, for, for what comes next. So, so, so they're smarter. So Iran and the United States both actually wanted the same yeah, outcome, yeah, but, but Iran yeah. read what was going to happen more intelligently yes. than the U.S. did. Yes, yes. Um, you know, and, and, and there were different deals going on. There were different sort of side room talks and talking. Um, and Abadi is in the middle of all of this, by the way. Um, and Abadi's number one priority, he's the prime minister of Iraq, his priority is he doesn't want the Iran-U.S. feud to come into Iraq. And until now, it hasn't come into Iraq. So right? he wants in, them both to be on his side, Yes, yes. So what he's trying to do is balance one off of the other. Because in a funny way, they both have the same interests. They've both been against ISIS. They've both been fighting against ISIS. Um, and, and, and they both seek somewhat of a, of a stable Iraq, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this idea in, in Washington that Iran, I think John McCain used the word, has a malign influence in Iraq, um, is a bit of a stretch, maybe a big stretch, actually. Uh, because Iran learned in 2014 that disenfranchising any of the populations will lead to groups like ISIS emerging. And, and Iraq, unlike the other countries that Iran is influential in, is on Iran's border. Before we go, we go to the bigger question of, of Abadi and his relationship with Iran, right. just looking at Kurdistan for a minute, yeah, sure. uh, Iran has been a long backer of the Kurds. Mm-hmm. The Kurds took re- many of the Kurds, not all of them, many of the Kurds took refuge there during Saddam's mm-hmm. persecution, during the Anfal. They've supported it in, in all kinds of ways, mm-hmm. including militarily, intelligence, and, and economically. Uh, uh, and there's sort of a cultural tie as well between between the Ira- Iranians and the Kurds. What is their position? I mean, if they're gonna if they're gonna be willing to be seen as as essentially opposing independence, uh, are they gonna lose that special bond, or, or how do they preserve the the idea that they ha- that they care about the Kurds as Kurds? Oh, Iran. Yeah. Huh? How does Iran preserve yeah. this idea? How does Iran preserve it? It's money. It's investments. I mean, it's deals. It's power. 
It's not that, I mean, this, this idea that victimhood or, or, or this kind of high politics, humanitarian, you know, support or cultural support actually work in international relations is wrong, you, you know. What Iran does is it makes deals with local allies. The Talibani family particularly is a major ally of Iran. The reason why Kirkuk, kind of the Peshmerga withdrew, was because Abadi, working with Iran, made uh, a deal to, to reclaim Kirkuk, right? Jalal Talabani famously worked with, with Iran. In 2012, he effectively saved Maliki's premiership on the request of Mr. Qasim Soleimani. Uh, so it's, you know, I mean, at the moment, there's a lot of anti-Iranian sentiment amongst the Kurdish people, but Iran has always had an influence and will continue to have an influence in this region. Was, was the withdrawal from Kirkuk... Uh, a Soleimani deal, as has been reported by, by some? It was a bad deal. Um, listen, this whole Iran influence in Iraq thing isn't the full story. Abadi is facing a huge struggle and to, to kind of fight back against Iran, Iran's deep penetration into the Iraqi state, right? Even within the prime minister's office, Iran is everywhere, the Ministry of Interior particularly. So Abadi... Is, trying, is, is on the front line, the Iraqi forces are on the front line, right? Not the sort of Shia paramilitaries under the public mobilization units. They've been supporting, and he needs them. He needs Iran, right? So this, at the same time that he's trying to fight back against Iran, he also needs Iran, right? And so it's that delicate balance that he's still trying to figure out. Uh, and, you know, Iran has, to some extent, been a stabilizing force at times. Masoud Barzani himself, in 2014, stated on the record that Iran was the first country to defend Kurdistan, right? Turkey left. Everyone else wasn't there, and Iran did it. So, at this, you know, I mean, Iran, listen, Iran has their own interest. Qasem Soleimani, you talk about, of course he's going to have the interest of Iran, and that's not good for Iraq, right? But... Iraq, the Iraqi government viewed Qasem Soleimani as a foreign military advisor, just like they would view any American military advisor. They don't think one is better than the other. So this gets to your, your recent argument. You wrote in, in, in an op-ed in early November in the New York Times that um, Abadi is not a puppet of Iran, that Iraq is not a sort of col de facto colony of, of, of Iran, and that mm -hmm. if Iran's done better than the U.S., that it's because Iran's played a smarter game. Mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, uh, I want to hear more of that argument, but uh, it's not just that Iran's played a smarter game, it's that, that they're more scared of Iran. I mean, when America asks them to do something, if they don't want to do it, they don't do it, mm -hmm. and there's few consequences. Mm -hmm. This is just mm -hmm. realpolitik, mm -hmm. whereas they don't want to annoy the Iranians because Iranians have ways of tanking. Their, mm -hmm. uh, they, can, they can topple a government. They can make it hard for a government mm -hmm. to govern. They've had much more heavy-handed effect on coalition forming negotiations mm -hmm. after Iraqi elections and so mm -hmm. on. So this is right. this is not just that they are, I mean, I agree with your take that they're not maligned, they're just an interested actor, but they have a lot more lovers at That's their hands true. than, That's than the U.S. That's very true. Um, and, and, and at the same time, you know, Iraqi actors like Abadi and even the Talibani, as I mentioned, Kurds and Shias both rely on Iran to some extent, right? In the past, they've relied on Iran, as I say, for security. So it's a give and take as well. Um, Iran has supported them uh, as well. But look at what Abadi did right after the referendum. He first went to Saudi Arabia, right? Then he went to Jordan, the, the creator of the whole fear of the Shia crescent. Then he also met with a Turkish leader, and then he went to Iran and met with Iran, right? The point being, he's trying to put place Iran in the context of everyone else. His, what he's fighting back against isn't Iranian influence as such, but it's Iranian hegemony. It's being prone or at the behest of only one power, and especially because it's so powerful.
Is he doing a visibly different, uh, following a visibly different strategy here than Maliki did in terms of trying to balance outside relations? Well, I mean, Maliki, you know, his term, I mean, his eight years, there was a bunch of different policies followed. Uh, but in general, Maliki had a terrible relationship with David Petraeus, for example, during those years. Maliki decided to go against certain U.S. policies. He kind of went against the, the Sahwa and the Sons of Iraq program, alienating some of the Sunnis. Um, and Maliki, increasingly after 2011, 2010 to 11, became closer to Iran. Why? Because, as you said, Iran helps form governments, right? So, so after 2010, when Maliki lost the election, he was able to form a government with the support of Iran, um, bringing the Shia together, right? So even someone like Muqtada Sadr, Right, mm. who fought a civil war against Maliki, ended up giving Maliki his seat. Right, so Maliki realized this exact thing that you're saying: you can only deal with Iran, and Iran will support you, and the rest are trying to destabilize you, even though the U.S. were supporting him too. So, uh, so looking looking ahead, do you take from from what's happened uh, after the Kurdish referendum and the sort of reestablishment of Iraqi power that? we might see some real substantial moves towards federalism with rights for Kurds or rights for Sunni mm -hmm. Arabs in mm -hmm. the context of a, of a sort of coherently functional federal Iraq? Mm. Yeah, I mean, so what the referendum exposed was just how fragile the Kurdistan region is, right? How weak the state apparatus is. The security sector fell apart. The president was unable to control his Peshmerga. These are things that we've been trying to kind of talk about for years. Institutionalize your security sector. Go fight corruption. We need to move away from tribal or part political parties or family or business links. You need an institution. So what the referendum shown and, and sort of, you know, when, when, when Abadi with sort of the U.S., Iran, and everyone decided to move into to, to Kirkuk showed how weak that was, right? So for a long time, the Kurdistan region was able to kind of get away with a lot, right? Because the Iraqi state was very weak. So it, in 2014, it took over some disputed territories, took over Kirkuk, and just, you know, in 2014, Masud Barzani said, Kirkuk is ours forever now. This, is, this date is historic, right? I mean, it's important to remember that. It, it, it seems like... Historically, Iran's been very close to all the Kurdish factions. It provided them refuge during uh, Saddam's oppression. It's been uh, a military, economic, intelligence partner of, of all these different factions. And then, of course, it has tight relationships with so many factions in Baghdad who mm -hmm. are at loggerheads with the Kurds. Mm -hmm. How can they manage to be close uh, uh, and, and have these sort of cultural and economic as well as political ties with so many factions that are also fighting each other? I mean, this, this is the same case for the U.S. as well. I mean, one, something that John McCain said, one of the, probably one of the only good things that he said uh, recently, what you have are American weapons fighting against, you know, being shot at other American weapons. Um, you so, mean the, uh, uh, the Kurds, American aid to the Kurds yeah, being used against, against American the, aid yeah, to the, the Iraqi Iraqis, government? Yeah, so basically you have, you know, these, and it's not, I mean, it's not the first time in the region that this is, being, this is happening. In any case, as I say, Iran's influence uh, in Iraq is deep. It's always one step ahead. Um, and, and partly because it understands these actors, right? Um, it understands the Barzanis, it understands the Talibanis and these characters in the Kurdish areas. Iran knew that there was no way that Barzani could take a deal and postpone the referendum. He'd gone too far, if you understand the culture, understand he needed to save face. However, uh, the U.S. had a bit more of a hope. And, you know, when I was speaking to some of the kind of in London, D.C., elsewhere, 
um, in, in the run-up to, to the referendum, they were like, well, maybe, maybe we can convince, maybe, you know. Whereas Iran was preparing for the aftermath in support, of course, of the, uh, with, with the uh, Iraqi government, Haider al-Badi. So in this, in this case, the United States and, the, and, the Iran, and Iran both wanted the same outcome. They wanted the Kurds yeah. to cancel the referendum. And you're saying just that the Iranians were smarter uh, in terms of reading where things were going to go. Yeah. They understood that, that Barzani had drunk his own Kool-Aid mm-hmm. and was just going to do this no matter what. And maybe he believed his own, uh, his own formidable uh, strategic PR and thought that somehow he could pull it off. Mm-hmm. Did the Iranians orchestrate the military campaign to retake Kirkuk? Was that, was that the work of Qasem Soleimani, as mm-hmm. I've, I've read in various usually uh, Kurdish-sourced uh, uh, reports? Um, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's good that you bring up Qasem Soleimani. Um, I mean, he's the, been, the Iranian Revolutionary yeah. Guard mastermind who yeah. sort of blamed, like, where's Waldo for everything that happens in the uh, Yeah, in exactly. Um, he, he has been very successful in pursuing Iran's interests. Look, the way that the Iraqi government views Qasem Soleimani and Iran and his Quds forces uh, is like a foreign actor who is a military advisor, just like Iraq has foreign military advisors from the US. They don't assign any kind of moral or ethical superiority to one or the other. Both of these sides are looking out for their own interests, and the Iraqi government knows that, but the Iraqi government needs them. It needs them both. You know, one of the interesting things that he said is, please, until now, the Iran-US conflict hasn't been in Iraq. Right, Iran and the U.S. No matter what sort of some of the neocons will tell you, and some of the others who who are fogged by emotion, um, stemming back to the hostage crisis and 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 the Jaish and the Shia militias, Iran and the U.S. have worked together in Iraq. Maybe not directly, but certainly there's been an alignment at least, which means that in 2006 and then again in 2010, they both supported Nuri al-Maliki. They both funded the fight against ISIS. They were both leading on the fight against ISIS. They've been aligned, right? And Abadi knows that. And Abadi can kind of, is trying to concoct some kind of uh, balance where he the Iran-US feud doesn't come into Iraq. And, and, and he knows that Iran is the smartest player at the moment in the region. Iran has, on a small budget, maintained so much influence, right? I mean, it's overstated in, in D.C., and that, that's what the article that I wrote was about, but it is the most powerful. Abadi knows Iran is the most powerful. Um, and Abadi needs Iran at the same time, he, and, and he needs some of the, you know, Iran's groups. But what he doesn't want is Iranian hegemony. So let's talk about the viability of the Iraqi state. When, when this Kurdish independence bid faltered, one of the myths that was punctured was the myth of Kurdish effectiveness, basically this idea that, mm. that Kurdistan was this viable state. Uh, and it's been this success story that the Iraqi military has come in and re-established control of the disputed areas and shown itself to be more competent than at any point since uh, Saddam's fall. Uh, but how viable is Iraq, the mm-hmm. federal, the yeah. federal Baghdad Iraq mm-hmm. that's uh, that's now ascendant as mm-hmm. as Kurdistan uh, uh, is eclipsed. Well, I mean, look at Kurdistan, right? You had a lot of uh, lobbyists in D.C. creating this idea of the other Iraq, the Kurdistan regional government, which is the new Dubai, the new Switzerland. It's a strong state, and what was exposed was tribal business familial links and personalities were so strong that the state wasn't there. It Corruption was, it was and thug rule. Corruption and thug rule, right? So at the point where when Abadi moved his forces with the support of, of others into Kirkuk, 
the Peshmerga law was had local leaderships who decided to withdraw against what this the president their president wanted right it's it, it's it's academic i know it's maybe it's not so cool to to always talk in these terms but i'm really fascinated in this idea of the state and and and, and non-states so in iraq and both and all over what you have are state actors who, who engage in non-state kind of activities quote quote unquote you have non-state actors who engage in state activities. So what you have is a blurring of the line between what is a state actor and what is a non-state actor. And the example, one of the main examples that we use is the Al-Hajj al-Shaabi, the Popular Mobilization uh, Forces, which is an umbrella organization of some 60 uh, paramilitaries, each who have their own leaders, uh, some of the leaders who are, are, are not under the state, um, some of the leaders who are closer to Iran, some of the leaders who, who, who actually try and uh, bring Abadi down. Yet, as of last year, November last year, the, the, the popular mobilization units are a state institution, right? Because the parliament passed the law. So when you speak to a judge, right, a judge will tell you in Iraq now legally that he or she, mainly he's, but sometimes she's, <laughs> will consider the popular mobilization units in the same capacity as they consider the Iraqi state force. So this, this ad hoc coalition of militias is now legally yes, equal, equivalent to the yes. defense ministry. Yes, yes. Uh, and so what, what does that say about the state? That, that may be betting on uh, a more effective federal rights-based Baghdad-controlled Iraq is a, a weak bet. There is a lot to be worried. And, you know, if you want to talk about the Iraqi state, uh, since 2003, you know, the U.S. went in, they called for regime change, but what they actually did is they completely restructured the state. The idea was, let's have a weak central government so that the regions can be powerful because we want to have inclusivity, which is a great thing. Let's bring, get everyone involved, right? The problem was what you had was a weak central government that was unable to control or, or, or give power away. It, it lost power. What Iraqis have realized now, and there is a bit of positive in, in this, is that what you need is a central government, this is what Abadi is trying to do, by the way, you need a central government that is strong enough to be able to afford powers as described by the Constitution. I mean, this I'm painting is such an idealistic uh, situation, but that's kind of um, what the Iraqi protesters are, are calling for. So Abadi is doing something that satisfies a lot of Iraqi citizens in reestablishing national authority yes. over this breakaway region. Yeah. But where does it end? Does, it, does this turn into a, a, well, a, an ethnic the... thing where, where suddenly we'll have Arab anti-Kurd sentiment running amok? I mean, you've seen some of that, uh, but I mean, it's not too much. You have seen things like, an, you know, an, an Iraqi Arab stepping on a Kurdish flag and taking a picture and posting it on social media. You've seen some of that. But in all in all, I don't, I mean, I think that it, it's not significant. Um, first of all, the disputed territories, there's so many different ethnicities, so many different religions, sects. I mean, it's, it's, it's really kind of a microcosm of what is Iraq as a whole. However, what's happening today in Iraq, right? Because we talk about the state. Iraq's done this before. Iraq was built in 2003, failed in 2006, the state, civil war, came back out in 2008, a few years of good governance, then failed again in 2014, right, uh, when ISIS took over, and now it's going back into the cycle of rebuilding, right? So the question then becomes, is there anything different this time around? Or is this cyclical thing just what we're going to expect? And the fundamental difference this time around is that internal uh, sect and internal ethnic whatever uh, disputes and rivalries are very powerful. So what I'm saying is internal Shi'i fighting 
uh, internal Kurdish fighting and also internal Sunni fighting means that politics is beginning to change to some extent away from these monolithic identity style politics um, and towards what maybe people are starting to look for is issues within. Is there, um, is there any hope to be found in a confluence of interest in a successful federal Iraq? Um, yeah, I mean, we will have to see the next few days and next few weeks are going to be very important for Iraq. There is this opportunity that you talk about, but we'll see what Abadi does. I mean, at the moment, people are worried that he's kind of going to overstep uh, and, and continue on this high that he's on. People are even, those who are against him particularly, are even comparing him to Nuri al-Maliki's predecessor, who also started off as a weak leader, who then found an opportunity through a war against both Sunni and Shia uh, militias to, to emerge as a strong man, right? And then we know what, what the, you know what the end of that story is. And again, as we say, the state institutions are very difficult. Abadi has to deal with the parliament that sometimes gives him a hard time. The judiciary is, is is also giving him a hard time. I mean, he, he's having to balance between all of these different forces, foreign forces, internal forces, you know, Iraqi forces, regional forces. Um, and so he, it seems like what he's saying is the right thing, but there is still, like anything else in Iraq, there is an, a chance that it could go bad. Well, let's hope uh, out of the, the shambles of the ISIS war and the failed Kurdish independence bid that we get some kind of, kind of improvement in political conditions inside Iraq. Yeah. Uh, Renat, thanks, uh, thanks for your time. And, thanks and, for ending it on a positive note. After the break, we'll be joined by Christine Vandentorn to talk about Kurdish politics. Hi, uh, this is Thanasi Kambanis. I'm back with Christine Vandentorn, the Director of Research at IRIS, the Institute of Regional and International Studies. So this is uh, one of the preeminent research uh, institutions in uh, the Kurdish region of Iraq. Uh, and Christine has been working there for about a decade, and so she's one of the, uh, one of the few impartial experts in what goes on in Kurdistan. Uh, thanks for taking the time to be with us uh, today. Christine. Thanks for having me. And uh, we are in the Dar Bistro Cafe bookstore. So if you hear a uh, restaurant and, or reader noises in the background, that is why. Um, so, uh, Christine, for starters, can you just tell us what actually just happened in Iraq uh, with, the, with the Kurdish referendum and this sort of war, not war, that, 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 that broke out? Yeah, I think, you know, the Kurds have, you know, for decades, centuries, wanted a state of their own and been struggling toward that independent nation uh, for some time. And, you know, that struggle has really picked up since 2003. And, you know, with the recent war against ISIS, uh, with their alliances with the United States and the coalition, uh, the taking or the reclaiming uh, well, disputed territory. Well, well, so, yeah. so three years ago when ISIS took over Mosul and became yeah. this sort of jihadi state, the Kurds, in, in response to that, took over this whole part of Iraq that had been, dis, you know, in dispute for decades, and suddenly they were in control of, of places like Kirkuk and the oil fields. Um, and, I mean, I'm curious, did they think that they were going to get to keep those places forever? I think that they knew that they would, there would be a day when negotiations would come and they would have to give up some of them, but not all of them. What happened last week with the Iraqi army and the federal forces retaking all of the disputed territories that the Kurds had taken three years ago 
was unexpected and unanticipated. They thought they would be in these disputed territories, the Peshmerga forces, and then be able to bargain. But instead, we have the opposite situation now. So, so what's so what's the deal? I mean, the the myth the myth is that uh, the Kurdish Peshmerga are like the best fighters anywhere in the in the Middle East, and they're sort of the uh, special forces, a super ethnic army that is somehow better than any Arab army around, um, and that the Kurdish state was somehow a more competent, more westernized. Uh, uh, democratic liberal enclave. So what? So what happened? Was that was that a myth? I think you know the Peshmerga forces have a great legacy of struggling against Saddam, and you know I think every Kurd in the Peshmerga is very devoted to Kurdistan and to the idea of defending the, the Kurdish nation. But there, the other side of that is that you know since two thousand and three. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of training of the Peshmerga, command structure building, institutionalization of the Peshmerga into a real, legitimate, regional or uh, state fighting force. So was this was this incompetence? Was this neglect? I mean, why did you know this is a this is a a people that suffered a, a near mm-hmm. genocidal attempt to wipe them out, and their safety valve was having the Peshmerga uh, uh, protect them. So. How did they let this vital part of not just their national self-image but their survival uh, uh, crumble into, into yeah. obsolescence? Or, or I mean, I think the decay. answer to that has to do with like the second question you asked just a second ago about, and you know, everyone thinks that Kurdistan is this uh, blossoming democracy, um, this island of decency in the Middle East, and really, I mean, Kurdistan suffers and. Uh, from the same plague of the rest of the Middle East. It's not about Arab or Kurd. Lack of democratic institutions, lack of any institutions, lack of mechanisms for negotiations. And that, and so the, the, the lack of institutionalization of the Peshmerga is just one example of that. So parliament didn't meet for two years. Salaries haven't been paid consistently for two years. You have two families that control the government system, if you can call it that, and also the Peshmerga forces. So the reason the Peshmerga failed to fight or withdrew reflects the divisions in the Kurds. You know, the storyline was that Kurdistan was somehow better than its neighborhood, but the reality was that Kurdistan maybe even lagged behind and, and, you know, whether measured by corruption or administrative competence or their defense uh, structure. Yeah, I mean, I think... When you look at 2003, I mean, and this is because of, a, you know, the Kurds and the Kurdistan region suffered under Saddam. And by suffered, I mean, did not build institutions under the Iraqi state, at least as, you know, the strong institutions that exist in Baghdad and some of the Iraq proper provinces. So I, when 2003 comes along and they, you know, the constitution gives them a region, there were no institutions And they have failed to develop institutions since then. And so you had no institutions and a massive influx of oil revenue and wealth that instead of building institutions went to fortify the tribal familial structures that have existed there forever. So it's so it's another another maybe warlord or mafia dominated corruption zone of corruption rather than a an inchoate modern modern yeah. liberal state. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think people, you know, that speak out against this, you know, are usually, you know, it's not helpful for the Kurds for everyone to come and write about them as they're this 
democratic functioning state when it's not because it just prevents any sort of reform or efforts or from within and without. So is there uh, is there a lot of freedom for critical media and dissenting politics or, or uh, plural views in uh, Kurdistan these days? Over the past you know decade, there has definitely been a rise of Kurds who write in English critically about the government. But they're few and far between, and they're targeted in various ways by the ruling parties. And the ruling parties, you've said, are, are essentially family dynasties rather than sort of yeah. ideological political parties. Yeah, and I would say when I say parties, we should yeah, qualify that because these two parties are dominated by two families. Or there are two families that have this kind of veneer of a political party, the KDP and the PUK. 2017 in Kurdistan is not 2009 or 2004. The education system's not great, but it's certainly better. And there is an opening and there is space now for this kind of criticism. Um, but there's still a long way to go um, until that would challenge the ruling, I think, authorities. What about this narrative that, uh, that took hold in certainly in Washington after the referendum? So the, the Kurds vote for independence and a referendum that America and many others encouraged them not to, to hold. And then the Iraqi government uh, reestablished control over over all these areas and including over Kurdistan itself. And the, the, the storyline uh, that many people were furthering was that America had betrayed the Kurds once again, uh, just like in, uh, in 1990, just like in 1975, just like, you know, many times in history. Um, and that and that we had stood by while Iran somehow took over Iraq and Kurdistan through, through this. Um, so can you speak to both those things? I mean, did, did America betray its Kurdish allies and, and its own values? And second of all, did America somehow open the door to a deeper Iranian control uh, through this? I would say, honestly, the opposite. If we're going to use the word betray, you could say the Kurds betrayed America. Because the past years, you know, when, the, when people use this narrative that the Kurds fought ISIS for us, the Kurds also fought ISIS for themselves to protect Kurdistan. And I would and I would also say that you know it was a misreading of US policy, these words like betrayal and deserve and blame. The Kurds misread US policy. We, the US, our policy is to support a united federal federal Iraq, and Abadi is our ally. Supporting Kurdish independence would directly counter that policy. And I would argue even the opposite, as some have. Supporting Kurdish independence would strengthen Iran and other radical elements in Baghdad. You support Iran, if you support Kurdish independence, you support the Malikis. You support the Asa'ab al Oh, so this is like, uh, uh, so you're saying if you back the independence faction in Kurdistan, it would be part of backing extremists in there every community. There would be a huge backlash also against this. And it would deeply challenge Abadi's control, power, position in Baghdad if he, quote-unquote, lost the Kurds. And the U.S. supported that. Then you push Baghdad and Iraq closer to Iran, and you empower those that oppose Kurdish independence. The Kurdish future, whether it's independence or not, is through Baghdad. It's not over in Ankara, it's not Tehran, it's not in Washington. I mean, the Kurds tried to declare their state through lobbying effort. Well, right, it was, I thought it was uh, 
a bad sign when Israel was one of the only uh, governments that publicly supported the referendum. Yeah. I thought they should have canceled it at the moment that Netanyahu was uh, yeah. was endorsing them. But I guess maybe they believed their own uh, propaganda at that stage. Yeah, maybe Barzani is, thought mm-hmm. that 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 when push came to shove, uh, all these uh, international powers like Turkey and the United States that had been unequivocally opposed would somehow flip sides. But that's... I think everyone thought that. I think no one expected the international reaction, especially the U.S., to be this strong. No one in Kurdistan expected Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because everyone outside was hearing repeated, consistent yeah. comments saying, this is what we'll do, and then mm-hmm. everyone did what they said they would do. No, yeah. one, no one had a surprising public position on this. No, and I think... The Kurds didn't want to hear that. They were told they were told a very different narrative by certain advisors. So I'm not saying they wouldn't have done it on their own. They probably would have. Do you see any prospects in the aftermath of this failure for either reform or some kind of uh, uh, attempt to fix what's wrong with yeah. Kurdish politics and, 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 and public life in, in the wake of this, this sort of humiliating reversal? Yeah, I mean, I think... Number one, that will depend on whether the Kurds can enter real negotiations with Baghdad and vice versa, because there's no other option right now. There need to be real negotiations with Baghdad about a new federal compact. And then the second issue for the Kurds that will determine their future is whether they internally can get their house in order, uh, whether we can see new parties, new actors, real moves toward uh, institutions in Kurdistan. Um, And I think you do see that to an extent. Um, There is really uh, mass popular discontent with the two ruling families um, and this dynastic succession and rule. So you do see, I think, an opportunity for real reform and change, and that will come internally in Kurdistan, but also in Baghdad. And uh, and you'll be a part of it so long as you're still at the American <laughs> University of Iraq and Suleimani, which is one of these institutions that uh, that we're talking about. Uh, uh, well, Christine Vandentorn, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to TCF World. I uh, hope to have you back on our podcast sometime yeah. soon. Thank you very much. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about Century's work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.